are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchers, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father Sepulchers, that I may build it. I don't need to stand here and give you statistics to paint a picture for you that would make you aware of the fact that America is indeed sick tonight. Nehemiah came before the king and his countenance was sad, not because he was ill, not because he had had some sorrowful news from home, but he was sad because the city that he loved with all of his heart, the Bible said, the city lieth in waste. If we walk outside these doors and go just a few blocks into the city around this church, you would not have to walk very far before you would see very evident signs that the city that we are called to reach here, Santa Clara and San Jose and this great Bay Area, we would be able to see evidence that the city indeed today is in waste. That's America. That's who waits on us as we leave this conference. How should we return? Frivolity? How should we return back to our cities from whence we came? Should we go back home thinking everything is status quo, everything is fine? I'd like you to focus your attention with me for the next few moments upon the subject matter. The city lieth in waste, and that describes all of our cities. Nehemiah said, King, I'll tell you what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to send me back to that city. And I'd like you to equip me that I can go home and repair the damage that's been done. You know, it's one thing to come learn how the, how much the, the, the needs are and how wonderful the needs are and how great the needs are. And it's one thing to sit around after the services talking about how horrible the conditions are. But it's yet another thing to say, I don't want to just talk about how bad it is. I want to do something about it. Yeah. Nehemiah went to that city. And we find beginning recording in chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah some of the results of a Nehemiah that returned with the blessing of the king equipped from the king to do the job. First of all, it says in verse number 1 of Nehemiah chapter 8, all the people gathered themselves together as one man. There was no rift. There were no arguments. No one stood and said, I think you ought to do it enough for the way. No one said, oh, I've tried it that way, I don't like it, let's do it this way. But the Bible says they gathered themselves together in the streets as one man. I would like to suggest to you tomorrow morning that revival began to come, and it came in the form of revival of relationships. 
Young people, some of you are sitting out here today, you and your mother or you and your father have had cross words one with another. They've asked you to do something as, as trivial as carry out the garbage or mow the yard or clean out the garage or clean your room and you back-talked them and you've stood up and, and reviled them to their face. God looks down upon us. He says, hey, if that city is going to be claimed and if the city is not going to continue to lie in waste, wherein is the revival of relationships with your parents? I'll never get out of my mind when my father notified me that his mom had passed away, my grandmother. My mom and dad had just arrived in North Carolina for a surprise visit. My grandmother was not even ill. She was a picture of good health. And while they were there on the visit, absolute tragedy, absolutely unexpected, my grandmother passed away. The night my father left his mom and said, I'm going to go over here to uh, my my mom and dad's house uh, where where, uh, my mother lives and grew up. He turned to say to his mother, I love you. But he didn't say that. He looked at her and my dad's not the kind of man to express those kind of feelings. And he said, I, I looked at my mom and sitting there in her gray hair and, and sitting there with a, a godly, saintly look on her face. He just said, Mom, I'll see you tomorrow morning. How about some breakfast? My grandmother looked at him and said, Son, you come over here tomorrow morning about 7.30. I'll fix you some bacon and eggs and sausage and country sausage and, and some big old cat head biscuits and coffee. And we're going to have ourselves a big time tomorrow morning. My dad said, Son, I had the words on the end of my tongue to say, Mom, I love you. He said, But I turned and just said, Okay, Mom, I'll see you tomorrow. He didn't see her tomorrow alive. And he called me to the back of the funeral home and he said, Son... I don't know as much about the Bible as you do. You've gone to college and you've pastored and preached and i got to ask you a question. I said, what is that, Dad? Our hearts were mutually breaking. I love my grandmother with all my heart and mind and body and soul. She, she was such a precious person to me. We're both standing there hurting and I said, what is it, Dad? He said, can people in heaven hear what we say down here? Do they know what's going on? I didn't know what my dad was getting at. And I said, well, dad, I, I'm not sure how to answer that. I said, the Bible says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over every sinner that repenteth. I said, I think in heaven they know when someone gets saved or, or maybe there's a saintly godly woman in heaven and her son is reclaimed or her daughter comes to the Lord that, uh, that, that it's known throughout the courthouse of heaven. I'm not sure. I says, and the Bible says, seeing that we're encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. I said, in some sense, God seems to imply that, 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 uh, in heaven they seem to know somewhat goes on down here. I said, why? he said son the last time I saw my mom I wanted to tell her I loved her and I didn't I just said I'll see you for breakfast and I never told it to her he said I was just hoping that maybe God would let her know that for me and I saw my dad big old strong man turn his face up toward the ceiling in that funeral home and he said God if you just let her know what I'm saying mom I love you. Most of us in this room perhaps still have our moms. How long has it been since your revival of relationships has carried you to the closeness of your family, of your mom and dad, and it was like heaven on earth instead of a hell on earth because of some stinking rotten attitude? Revival of relationships with your parents. Revival of relationships with your pastor. 
I won't say much about that. It's been covered already. But let me let me just say this to you. That man that stands behind that pulpit every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, that man that helps organize or helps put somebody in charge of your youth activities so you can have an enjoyable teenage life, that man that sees to it that the bills are paid so you can come sit down in a church building and have a nice service on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and have a place to go bus calling and have a place to bring the children when they ride the buses in on the bus ministry. You look at that man and say, I thank God for my pastor. How dare us ever stand and raise our voice and our attitude and our hand against the man of God? How dare us? And that goes for staff members as well. Fall in love with that man. He may not always make all the right choices, even in his own heart. Later he'll say, boy, I wish I'd done better in that certain area. No, no pastor that I know thinks he's a know-it-all and, and a big shot and, and he never makes a mistake. But I'll tell you what, I know your preachers, most of you, and I know that you've got preachers that are men that love you and they walk with God in the midnight hour. So when they come stand before you, they've got something to tell you from God. Fall in love with Him. You love Him. You pray for Him. Go out of your way to make His life fun. Go out of your way to make Him feel accepted in your youth department. Then I say how to have a revival, not only relationships with your parents and your pastor, but with your peers. Those that you sit in church with at your age. Those in your youth department. I'm sad to say that the assembled crowd that sits out in front of me right now is the age group. That's probably one of the most cruel age group times in your life. Somebody will come to the youth department and they don't look the way you think they ought to look. Or they don't have the height you think they ought to have. Or they don't have the weight you think they ought to have. Have too much or have too little. They don't have the walk you think they ought to have. And man, you get off in your little splinter groups and you get off in your little cliques and you begin to talk against that person that doesn't live up to your ideal of someone that's cool enough to breathe your air. And you think nobody cares and nobody pays attention. They know. Their hearts are shattered at your rejection. The most accepting place on the face of God's world ought to be the youth department of an old-fashioned, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church. Come on in here. We want you here. I saw him as he sat in class, went out to playgrounds. I saw him as he tried to get involved in the activities and no one would choose him to be on their team. We did not know that he had a medical condition that made him so obese. All we knew was he was just fat and we didn't like him and he wasn't anybody we wanted on our team. The only time he ever got to play is when the person that was overseeing the playground activities would come and force us to let us on a, let him on a side. Remember one morning in class, he raised his hand as our teacher was reading one of the, uh, a story to us to get the day started in the sixth grade. And she said, put your hand down. And he raised his hand again a few moments later. She said, put your hand down. Finally, he'd raised his hand several times. And she said, well, I'm almost done. Put your hand down. All of a sudden, he jumped to his feet to run out of the class. She had not realized and he had not spoken it to her other than raising his hand that he was ill. And before he got to the door, he'd gotten sick in front of the whole class. Humiliated. Rejected. Laughed at. On the playground that day after that incident I just described, unmerciful name-calling ensued. 
Monday morning when we reconvened in the classroom, his seat was empty. We began to figure out, hey, where's Bill? What happened to him? Why is he not in class? He had gone home that day, Friday, the day when it seemed that he could not stand any more name-calling. Mom and dad and brothers went back into the house when it was supper time, lived on a dairy farm. All of them had their chores finished, sat down for dinner. Bill was not there. Dad said, well, maybe he's got some trouble doing his chores. I'll go out and help him finish the chores. Then, then we'll come back and join you for supper. The father walked out in the barn area where Bill was to be doing his chores and walked in. His heart was crushed as he looked up over the beam in the middle of the barn was a rope and hanging on the end of the rope was his son Bill, dead. Cut him down, called the paramedics, pronounced him dead at the scene. His father found a note in his pocket, two words long. All it said was no friends. No friends. You thought it was just a fun time to get with your buddies and laugh at somebody. While you're doing that, their hearts are being destroyed and shattered. They cannot stand to be alone out in the midnight blackness with no friends, nobody to be a comrade with, nobody to be a friend with, nobody to buddy around with. And we call ourselves Christians. We need a revival of relationships. God said not only was there revival of relationships, but God says, I want you to look down there in verse number 2, there was a revival of reading. It says, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday. He did not tell an illustration. He did not act out anything to help them understand. He opened up the Word of God and read the Bible. And they stood all morning long. Some of you here have the Word of God sitting in your lap or on the pew there next to you, but the only time you pick it up is when it's time to walk out the door to Sunday school. God says we need a revival of reading. Someone did some figuring and said, if you want to read your Bible through one time a year, you say, Brother Davis, that's pretty thick. I, I don't think I could do that. Most of you, the Bible you have in your lap right now, if you read four pages per day, You'd read the Bible through one time every year. And some of you have not ever read it through one time yet. And you've been saved a good long while. Nothing that a revival of reading would not correct. There was another revival that occurred that day. It was found in verse number 6. Look there with me. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen! Amen! With lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. A revival of response. Boy, if there's ever a group of folks in the face of the world that are kind of categorized as people that don't respond very well, you know it's teenagers. Now, I pray to God it's not you, but you see your friends at school. You see the folks that live on your street. I mean, somebody could raise from the dead and they just sort of stare nonchalantly. Nothing ever gets hold of their heart. Nothing ever raises them to action outside of some worldly activity. God looks down. He says, what we need here is a revival, not only of our uh, of our relationships and a revival of reading, but a revival of response. Man, when the man of God stands up with the word of living God and opens it up and begins to preach, man, let the amens fly. Respond for your preacher. 
He challenges you to go soul winning. Don't sit at home. Respond. He challenges you to run a bus out. Don't sit at home. Respond. He challenges you to do something that he feels it's good for the ministry of the church. Respond. Do it for the cause of Christ. Revival of response. Revival. Verse number five. Of respect. Look at it. It says, And Ezra opened the book, the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood. Why, Brother Davis? Out of respect. I'm not convinced that we have a holy respect for God. Oh, but wait a minute. I read the King James Bible. I'm not convinced. I attend a a good church. I'm not convinced. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard behind him a voice that was the sound of a trumpet, the sound of many waters. John said, John said I turned around to see the voice that spake with me, and I saw him. When I saw him, I saw him stand there whose hair was as white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass that burned in a furnace. And his countenance was as the sun that shineth in its strength. John said, when I saw him, I fell down as if I were dead. You talk about a holy respect when you see God who he really is. I'd remind you that this God that we're calling for you to respect this morning deserves our respect. He's the one that looked out into the midnight blackness and spoke and caused the worlds to be framed and flung the universe out there for us to look up and see the stars like night. He's the one that stopped the funeral procession and raised the dead and said, go on home with your mama. He's the one that found someone that was blind, opened up their eyes, and he's the one that found someone that could not hear and said, listen to the singing of the birds. He deserves our respect. He's the one that ascended on the right hand of God and is right now preparing a mansion for us. And someday he's going to look and say, Gabriel, get out your trumpet, sound it. We're going to bring our kids on home. He's someone that deserves our respect. Revival of respect. Revival. Revival. And I hastened to ask you to look, please, at chapter 10 and verse number 28. says, and the rest of the people, the rest of the people, what's that mean? Eighty-two names are recorded just prior to that statement. Eighty-two. The Bible says that those eighty-two people wrote something down. Here's what they wrote. They said, we are making an oath before God that we will hear and do His commandments. And then the Bible says they wrote it down and each of them placed their seal on that written document. And then the Bible says, and the rest of them said, well, hey, we want to do that too. What? What was it 
that they wanted so badly that 82 of them said, put my name down here. God recorded in eternal history that my name is down there. There's one who put my seal upon the document who said, I want revival. Preaching Toronto, Canada. I'd been invited to be one of the speakers, though I was shocked. The other men on the platform are men, and if I said their name, you'd know them all instantly. Well-known fellows, I have no idea how I ended up there. They, they were the brand name. I was the generic brown, plain rapper kind of guy. <laughs> Sitting out there, then, boy, this is great. I'm going to get me some sermons to take them back to my church and preach them. <laughs> man stood up and looked out there and he did not begin his messages like most had done with some levity and kind of joking to the folks and that's good I'm, I'm for that if I could tell a joke I would I'm a rotten joke teller he said fellas a few weeks ago something happened though I've been in the ministry all these years and built a large church he said something happened to me that I'll never get over the rest of my life he said a man that I love with all my heart I was in his wedding, he was in mine. I was his best man, he was my best man. He called me on the phone. We had stayed together close together over the years and gone golfing together and, and, and had taken some days off together. We enjoyed each other's friendship. He said, he called me on the phone. I said, listen, I'm, I'm planning a revival meeting. He said, but let me tell you right off the bat, I'm not interested in inviting you to come down and go golfing with me. That's fine. We'll do that maybe another time. Not interested in just going out to eat and fellowshipping together. He said, with all my heart, I want revival to come to my church. He said, I've never fasted as much. I've never begged God as much over anything in my life. I'm trying to figure out who God would want to come preach the meeting for me. He said, I'm not asking you right now to say yes or no. I want you to fast over. Don't you, don't you call me back and give me an answer until you fasted and prayed. I think maybe you're the guy that ought to come, but I, I want you to know when you call me back if God's answered your prayer that you're the man. He said, I hung that phone up, but he said, it kind of shook me up. He said, I receive speaking engagements all the time. I just, by matter of fact, look at my calendar. If it's open, okay, I'll go. He said, I've never really done what he was asking me to do. He said, if it probably should have, he said, it never occurred to me on that matter. He said, I did fast and I did pray and I called my friend back on the phone. He said, I think God will let me come preach the meeting for you. Arrangements were made, a date was set, and I flew on down to his town. He picked me up and drove me to my motel room and said, I'll come by and get you in the morning. Had a word of prayer together there in our room, a season of prayer back and forth on our knees next to the bed. He said when he got up to leave, he was weeping. He said, I was weeping. He walked out the door, got in his car and drove home. The next morning, he came by my room and picked me up. We didn't go to have breakfast. We stopped and got a cup of coffee and, and just got back in the car and drove on down to the church house. Got there about a quarter after nine. Sunday school starting at ten. His church on a Sunday morning averaged about 150 in Sunday school. Most of those, like good Baptists, came about five minutes to ten. He said when we pulled into the parking lot at a quarter after nine, almost every parking stall was already full. He said, we got out and he said, neither of us said a word to each other. We just sort of exchanged glances. And he said, I saw his eyes well up with tears. And I saw that he labored to breathe without breaking down, beginning to weep. And we made our way to the building and went into the office and fell on our face in the office and said, God, we think you're about to do something here. Here we are, God. Use us. Fill us with the power of God. 
He said, then we made our way back out in the auditorium. By the time we got out there, it was jammed and packed. His own people did not sit in the pews at all, yet the auditorium was jammed. His own folks are standing around the walls, many of them sitting up in the choir loft, sitting on the stairs on the platform, outside on the foyer, looking in the windows. He kept looking at the piano and the organ, nervously, the pastor did. And he leaned over to me and he said, man, I can't believe of all days for the musicians not to be here. Time passed. He kept looking back and forth. He said it again. I came in. Here we are with a big special day and no, no music to set the atmosphere of the church service. They're always here. I wonder where they are. So I looked up and a couple of men came walking in the back door of the auditorium. They were identically dressed. Each of them out of respect for walking into the house of God had their hats in their hands. They began to walk around asking folks questions and they pointed down. He said to where myself and my friend were standing at the front of the auditorium. They came and asked me if I was the pastor. And I said, no, here, here's the pastor of the church here. He said, and these men, they were not young. He said, I was able to tell that they were seasoned veterans of the Ohio State Patrolman. And he walked over my friend and the spokesman of the group before he began to talk, began to weep. And he said, Reverend, I'm sorry to tell you that your wife and daughter have just been involved in a car accident right down here a few blocks from the church. Someone ran a stoplight. And Reverend, I'm sorry to tell you this, they're both dead. The preacher said when they told that to my friend, he fell to the ground like someone dropped a sack of groceries. And he began to weep and wail out loud so that even the folks outside the building could hear. He said, I heard the news and as it settled in that my friend's wife and his daughter, his daughter who I held in my hand when she was just a few hours old. He said, I knelt down there next to him and threw my arms around his neck and we wept bitterly. And he said, preacher, I tell you what. People will understand if we dismiss the service. Nobody could expect you to be able to go. He said, don't you dare do it. He said, I had no idea that's what was going to happen. He said, preacher, last night when I dropped you off at the hotel and I went home, I walked into the living room and my wife and my daughter were on their knees at the couch in the living room and they did not know I'd gone into the house. And I heard my daughter crying and weeping. And she said, dear God, we want revival in our church. We've prayed it before, but God, I've never experienced the desire for it like I am right now. God, please give us revival. And God, if you have to take my life for revival to come, I lay it down today. He said, I beg you, don't, don't dismiss the people. My daughter's prayers have led us to this place. I don't understand how, don't understand why. He said, I'm going to go sit against the wall over here. Preacher, you go preach. Do what you can. He said, man, I preached that morning and 300 people got saved. And the next month, over 1,000 people came to Christ in that little church. And then he looked at us and I was sitting there where you're sitting as he looked across the pulpit. And he said, I wonder, gentlemen, preachers and evangelists and missionaries predominantly in attendance, do you want revival? Do you want it? 
Are you concerned that the city lieth in waste? Do you care that by the throngs and the millions they march into hell by the second? And do you want revival that bad? Eighty-two names are listed there. Who would want revival bad enough to say, God, I want my name on that list too? Seattle. Portland. Oregon City. Tucker. Atwater. Modesto. Santa Clara. San Jose. San Francisco. San Diego. Who will go back to their city and say, God, the city lieth in waste. I want revival. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.